You're listening to the Pops on Hops podcast, where we listen to some pops, drink a little hops, and I get to hang out with my pop. I'm Abigail Hummel. And I'm Barry Hummel, and we want to welcome you to episode 61, where Abigail got to choose the album, and I got to pick out the beer. Abigail, what will we be listening to today? Today, we will be exploring the soundtrack for the motion picture, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron, which was a 2002 animated feature, and the soundtrack is by Brian Adams and Hans Zimmer. So Hans Zimmer did the composing, the musical composing. Brian Adams sang on all the songs with lyrics, and I believe he wrote the lyrics as well. He's listed as a writer, yeah. So I can't wait to talk about it with you. I have many thoughts on this soundtrack. It's one that I've been listening to since I was truly a small child. Zach and I, my little brother, we were obsessed with this movie when we were kids. I think the peak of us watching it was when we were moving across the country on our 18-day road trip from California to Florida. So I have lots of fond personal memories of this music and this movie. And you shared when I assigned you the album that you didn't think you'd ever seen the movie. So that was a total surprise to me. And I can confirm that I hadn't because I did watch it for today (laughs) and I had never seen it before. So I don't know how something that you watched so many times escaped me. Especially because you must have purchased the DVD. I don't know why you would have picked up the DVD for us if it wasn't something that you were interested in, because clearly we didn't see it in theaters if you nor mom had never seen it. That's correct. And as you know, I spent a lot of time going to animated movies, not just when you guys were young kids, but because Uncle Steve was in the animation industry, I saw a ton of films, even as an adult, before I had kids that he had been involved in or were part of the animation industry. I just think that by the time this came out, there was such a glut of animation at that point because this is a DreamWorks film, yeah, which was in direct competition to Disney and Pixar. And all of those three studios were cranking stuff out and it just got to be so much stuff that I think we started picking and choosing which ones we wanted to see in the theater and which ones we just wanted to buy the DVD at Costco because we could wait it out and get the DVD. Now, the other thing about this that's interesting, you mentioned the car. This was also the era where you guys watched a lot of movies on that DVD player in the car if we went on a long road trip. Yeah. And it wasn't the kind of thing where we would buy it, sit around the house like when you were much younger. You know, I would watch a film one time with you and then you'd watch it 8,000 times when (laughs) I'd seen it. I knew how it ended, so I, I would to sit through it again. And I feel like at this point, you were watching them for the first time, maybe in the car. There's a couple other ones in our collection that I don't remember watching that I know we bought in that era. Anyway, as part of this, not only did I, first of all, it's a very long album, as you know, so we have a lot to get through. There's 15 tracks on here, some of which are the same song a second time. Or even a third time. So I think some of the discussion will be a little bit limited on some of the songs, which will be helpful. But I did get four beers because of the number of tracks. And what I picked up, because I was I was going to go to Steam Horse and buy us beer, because I thought Steam Horse Brewing in Palm Beach County would be a great tie-in to this. So I slept up there with mom and Zach was home. We went up had a great time. The brewery's small and fabulous. Enjoyed everything I tried there. They had three things in the cooler. And one of them was their chancellor from Tequesta Brewing, which made me wonder if they were brewing for Tequesta or why did they have this in the cooler? Anyway, I bought all three of them. I figured, all right, so I'll get a couple of these things from Steam Horse. And when I got home and started packing the box for you, I realized that one of the beers that I picked up was from Twisted Trunk, <laughs> which we've already talked about. Yep. And I, was, I had one beer from Steam Horse. I thought, well, I can't really justify that. I can't call this a Steam Horse beer episode. We're just going to have to go up there sometime and actually do an episode at the brewery the next time we have something that ties in close. So I went over to Total Wine 
thinking, well, maybe I'll find some other steam horse items or maybe I'll find something else. I, I thought about the uh, Kentucky bourbon series. Is that Lexington Brewing? I think who does those because yeah. there's a horse on the label. I thought, oh, that's good. That would have been a tough episode, I think. <laughs> By the time we got to 15, track 15, I'd be resequencing in depth. Right? Uh, so I had them in the cart and then I went to the other section of like 12 packs just trying to get inspiration. And I found the coolest thing. Founders Brewing did a series of Goes beers called the Green Zebra series. And so that's what I picked up. We have four different flavored Gozes from Founders Brewing under the uh, masthead of the Green Zebra series. Watermelon, peach, pineapple, and mango. And I listed them in that order because that's the order we're going to drink them in because I've decided we need to drink them in what I think is the order of flavor intensity, increasing flavor intensity. So we'll start with the watermelon and we'll work our way up to the mango. So I'm going to reach in my cooler and because there's a lot to get to today, I'm going to go ahead and open the first one up if you don't mind. No, that's a great idea. I just wanted to say these cans are so cute and I'm really happy to be drinking from them. The titular green zebra is in sort of a different position on each can. So we're going to get a nice little buffet of zebras today. Yeah. And they're very tropical colors. They're beautiful. And it gave, gave me a great idea. I'm standing in the store i'm like oh i can call this striped the legend of the green zebra <laughs> and tie it right into the movie title so i put the uh heavy duty bourbon barrels back on the shelf well i appreciate you for that but i do want to say my boss who as we know is a listener of the pod she recently listened to the philip phillips episode she came in and she goes, you guys need to do more 14% beers. That was the most fun episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> and they were good beers. They were really good beers. Yeah. All right. This is a uh, kind of a light orange golden color. Oh, wow. I had a little bit of effervescence on the pour. I'm going to give this a little taste. And I like that very much. I do too. I feel like that's natural watermelon in there. It's extremely subtle. I'm having trouble picking up the watermelon, which would lead me to believe it's natural watermelon. Right. It's not artificially flavored because then it would be very easy to pick up. No, I think that's real watermelon in there. Yeah, I like that. It's very light, easy to drink. Yeah. In terms of the sour balance, I think it's just about perfect. It's tart. It's what you would call tart. Yes. Because there is a sweetness in there. I'm pretty mildly tart at that. Yeah, but it would be a good session sour. Yeah. Also a good one for uh, somebody who's not a uh, sour drinker to start with, to try. Definitely. As an entry into the category, because it's just subtle enough. You'll get a sense of what a sour might be, but it's light. Boy, I like that. I like it too. I hope they're all this good. I know, me too. I'm confident they will be. By the way, I didn't think we said this, but... Founders Brewing is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It is. And it's a pretty old one. And national distribution. You can get a lot of the stuff. Their all-day IPA series, I think, is probably their biggest selling series now. I think they make a great breakfast stout, if I'm not mistaken, that comes in a bottle. Ooh. So on Untapped, it said that at least a couple of these that we're drinking today are no longer in production. Yeah, I think this was like a limited special series for the summer. Got it. Because it's not listed on their webpage either. Well, while I'm sipping on this, I do want to, as we have done only on one other occasion where we've had a movie soundtrack, I just want to, because I think it's important for the discussion as we go track by track, to just go quickly through the plot of the film. And the basic premise of the film is it takes place in what appears to be the mid to late 1800s out west. And there is a herd of wild horses in which spirit is born. He becomes the leader of the herd. And then while investigating some new site, which is basically a campfire, he's caught by American soldiers who are obviously infiltrating the West, right? So it's kind of in the era where the United States is having westward expansion. 
and threatening the Native American population. So he's caught by that group. They try to break him. There's one character in particular who recurs through the thing who's a colonel of that group. They are unable to break him. And at some point they capture a Native American and together they escape. So then it shifts gears and it goes to a Native American encampment where they treat the horses a little more humanely, but they're still under their control, right? Yeah. But with a little bit more freedom. And that's where he meets Rain, who's the female character female horse, mare, I should just use the word. (laughs) (laughs) The love interest. Becomes his love interest through the film. And so the Native Americans work with him, again, trying to break him in a way that he can become controlled by that group. And at some point, the troops find the encampment and come and raid the encampment. And as a result of that, Rain, the mayor, is injured. And so Spirit takes off again. Now he's caught again by the troops. But this time, because they know they can't break him, they basically either sell him or give them to the railroad workers, where they transport him to the site of a railway expansion. And he realizes, Spirit realizes, that the railway is working its way toward his homeland. And so he disrupts that and escapes and works his way back towards his home where he reconnects with the Native American who found him initially, who brings him back and reintroduces him to the mayor, at which point the colonel discovers him yet again and now threatens him one final time. And and then this act of bravery spirit leaps over a canyon. At that point, the colonel just goes, got to give it to this horse and sort of lets him go. And at that point, he and the mayor reconnect with his family. That's the basic plot. There's three big movements in my mind. There's the part in the fort with the troops. There's the part with the Native American village for comparison. And then there's this weird set piece at the train. I have a lot of problem with the train sequence because he's brought by train Mm -hmm. to that place. So there's a working train already in the West. (laughs) so his big epiphany when he looks out west and goes oh the train is coming makes no sense to me because they just brought him all the way back from the west on a train to this place the other thing about that is they transport him by train it's basically overnight but it's by train and when he breaks free from that and he's running free his native american buddy is there well how did he get there this (laughs) this guy he went by train all this distance he's just like coincidentally there i have problems with the geography there's somewhat identifiable geographies like monument valley and it's autumn and then the next day it's green again and i had some issues with just the mechanics of that i know that sounds silly but it took me out of the movie a little bit to go well how did he get from monument valley to he was in bryce canyon at one point and you start doing the math on that and there's a lot of ground to cover and then he basically looks like he lives near yosemite or like at some point There's Yellowstone references because it's winter and the bison are there. So it's a weird kind of geography when you recognize the national parks. That horse herd covered a lot of ground. Well, I think ultimately this was a movie for children, right? And the children watching this movie aren't going to be asking those kinds of questions. Of course not. I think the geography was just meant to evoke the West. Like we spent a lot of time in the American Southwest because we lived out there and we did a lot of traveling out there. So we know that Bryce Canyon and Monument Valley are nowhere near each other, but those are both very Western coded landscapes, you know? So if you include those in the film, a lay person who hasn't done all the traveling and exploring of that area that we have is just going to think, oh, that's the Wild West, right? Of course, it's beautiful. But don't get me wrong. It's beautiful. The backgrounds and the scenery are beautiful. Gorgeous. It's just that I feel like in some ways this movie took place over about a week. (laughs) And then when you realize the geography and does that mean a bunch of time has passed or is it 
like tomorrow. It's hard to keep track of. I think there are a lot of time jumps and fast forwarding in this movie. I think that's where a lot of the soundtrack comes in. Wherever there's an instrumental song playing, I think it is implying time passing because if you'll remember, he was born at the beginning of the movie. So obviously there's quite a lot of time that passes in that first sequence. And so I do think that that happens many times throughout the movie, especially like his falling in love with Rain, them getting to know each other. That has to be at least weeks, you know? We would hope. Well, yeah. I don't know what horse romance is like, so (laughs) I don't know their culture. The other production note I wanted to make a note of is that this felt very Lion King to me in some ways. And there is a connection there to a certain degree, and that is that Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was part of the DreamWorks team, left Disney ostensibly because he was, or his perception was that he was being undervalued by Michael Eisner at the time, that he had done all this great stuff and couldn't advance up the chain. So he left to take more of a managerial role at DreamWorks, but he was also still in charge of the animation division, basically, when he went over there. Well, there's a story, a couple of competing stories about how The Lion King was developed, because you don't think about this, but at the time, The Lion King was the first film that was developed from original content at Disney. Everything else had source material. I mean, The Lion King has Hamlet. They didn't call it Hamlet, right? They kind of use Hamlet as a backdrop to tell the story. And by the way, some original drafts didn't have the Hamlet thing in it. Mm. Like they started with different stuff. But the idea was to do a movie about lines. Now, one story is that they approached Katzenberg about it and he just went, I don't see it. I don't know how that would work. How can you convince me that lions who eat other animals are to the benefit of the other animals or something like that? Then another story sort of says that he and Roy and somebody else talked about it on a flight coming back from Europe and that's how they did it. Hmm. That sounds like a retcon to me. Like initially he wasn't in favor of it. And then after it became a smash hit, he wanted to take a little more credit for it. That's how I read the fact that there's two different stories there. One of them, he didn't like it. One of them, he did. So to me, it means he liked it a lot more after it became a massive hit. Sure. But what's interesting to me is then he goes to DreamWorks and that was their first film that they did that was based on an original story and not source material like the Bible or (laughs) some of that early stuff they did at DreamWorks. You're referencing the (laughs) Prince of Egypt, of course. Yes, of course, which I think might have been their first release. But anyway, there's some imagery in this, like the bison herd coming up to the horses at some point that made me think about the wildebeest in The Lion King. I mean, there were some things in there that directly felt like stuff out of The Lion King. So it's almost like Katzenberg going over here and going, I got to have my Lion King moment over here Mm. now. And so he developed this from scratch to try to do that. And again, using an artist like Brian Adams and a composer to do the soundtrack is also very Lion King because that was the film where they used Elton John. That was the first time Elton John or a rock star had really been involved with a film over at Disney. And so here we are, same kind of thing. Here's a composer. Here's a rock musician. Let's do a big soundtrack. And let's focus a lot of energy and attention on that. And I think that the album suffers a little bit from that because there's many tracks on here that either weren't used in the film or were only used over the end credits. Right. And some of these would have been fine as singles, but there was only one single released from the album. There are other songs on here. I mean, there's one with Sarah McLachlan, and you go, well, why wouldn't that have been released as a single? You had some high-profile stuff on here. Right. And it just got wedged on the end credits and then put on a soundtrack album. Right. And that's a weird move to me. That's not an uncommon thing to happen. If it plays on the end credits, it's eligible for Oscar consideration, for example. That David Byrne song from Everything Everywhere All at Once, that was a over the end credits. They put them in there and they somehow call it part of the soundtrack. And to me, that's kind of a ripoff. 
So it was interesting that some of the songs on here were not used on the soundtrack, and some of them were designed as singles specifically and not even released because there was only one single release. Right. So I think the album suffers from that. I think it's a lot of material. It clocks in at just under an hour. We mentioned there's 15 tracks. Two of them are the same song, played a second time. They pile all the instrumentals together two-thirds of the way through the album, which I think takes away from it's a soundtrack album don't be afraid of the instrumentals sprinkle them around a little bit and break the album up differently don't just go one through nine on things that you think have the potential to be singles and then wedge all the music in and then come back with a couple more songs at the end it's a very odd structure to me did i like the music overall i like the music it's a little ballady for me but that's the nature of the film and i do want to say that i went through the exercise of evaluating the album on its own track by track reading the lyrics what do i think it's about before I ever watched the film. Oh, wow. And then I watched the film and paired up where the songs were in the movie and how that changed the interpretation of the song. And there's one on here in particular that's really interesting. It's one of the songs that was played twice and I had a different interpretation of what the lyrics meant. And it was the music that influenced that decision. It was very interesting. And that was before I ever watched the movie. Oh, wow. And then it turned out that my second interpretation was the correct interpretation. I was trying to interpret the songs on their own before I ever had the influence of the film, which is interesting because most of the times in the past when I've had soundtrack albums that I like, I'm into the movie and I love the music of the movie. And most of the ones I bought over the years are instrumentals. The instrumental tracks bring me to a place in time in the film because I'm doing it in reverse. Right. This time I evaluated the instrumentals. Just what did it feel like to me not knowing? And then when I watched the movie, seeing where they placed that music and how that worked in the film. So it was an interesting exercise to do it backwards. Yeah. I obviously didn't have the luxury of being able to do it backwards because I was so intimately familiar with the film. And these songs are just tied to the film for me. I can't evaluate them alone, but that's okay. I think, because if you were to bring me a soundtrack album, you'd have the same problem. So I think we're going to be able to have at least an interesting discussion about your before and after, even if we can't talk about my before and after. But I think if I were to give you a soundtrack album, let's say an instrumental soundtrack album, I would encourage you to watch the film first. Oh, okay. I think it'd be very hard to listen to an instrumental soundtrack album in isolation. You could, but... You really have to go back and reevaluate. And I did to a certain degree reevaluate the songs after you've watched the movie. Mm -hmm. Like I picked my third favorite this morning. Oh. I had two obvious choices for one and two from the first listen. And then the third one I picked because of the movie. Wow. I feel like we might have some matches today. I wouldn't be shocked. There were a few other things I wanted to say on background info. So you mentioned that this movie, you felt followed the same mold of Lion King, which was to have a pop star, rock star, and then a composer. What you failed to mention was they used the same composer because Hans Zimmer did the composing for the Lion King as well. He won the Academy Award for Best Original Score for that movie. Yes, you're right. You're right. Tim Rice and Elton John wrote the songs and he did the interstitial music. So much like this movie. Well, except that he, you'll notice that some of Hans Zimmer's score has elements, melodies from some of the songs or vice versa. Yes, 100%. So I don't know which came first, right? You're right that a lot of these musical motifs are repeated throughout. And like you said, there are multiple versions of the same song. That's my favorite part about a soundtrack is when you get those musical motifs that come back and you can recognize that from a previous song. That scratches my brain in the exact same way that Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly about music 
does, even though it's within the same soundtrack. I love hearing artists take pieces of previous songs and insert them into new ones just to call your memory back, right? And then the other thing I wanted to say was this movie was nominated for the Academy Award for the Best Animated Feature, and it lost to Spirited Away. Another movie with spirit in the title. Yes. How bizarre (laughs) is that? And I saw Spirited Away, not in theaters, but I saw it around that time. And it's a bananas movie. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. It is so weird and so wonderful. I don't think I don't know that I I don't think I've seen that one. It's bizarre. You need to watch it. (laughs) Well, what do you think? Should we dive into the track by track? I would love to. Because I think we're going to have more discussions about some of the parts of the movie as we do this. So the opening track is the only single from the album. And oddly, it's considered the end title of the movie. So I'm sure I'm not giving anything away when I tell you we're going to be hearing this again in the form that was used in the movie (laughs) as we got to the end titles. And that's the song Here I Am. So this version of the song was actually played over the end credits and not even in its entirety. They actually cut it short to ram two additional songs in there over the end credits that hadn't (laughs) appeared anywhere else in the movie. But they do start the end credits with this version of the song. And what's really interesting is, again, I listened to the album first, tried to evaluate the songs before I watched the film. And when I heard this version of it, this version of the song made me feel more like it was a love song, maybe among two people who knew each other for quite a while before they fell in love. Some of the lyrics just, it's a new plan. I've been waiting for you. Here I am. And again, without the context of the movie, that's how I evaluated the song. And I think if you heard it on the radio when it was a big time single, that's kind of what you would have thought Yeah. as an outsider. So it works. We've talked about this, I think, when we talked about Xanadu a little bit. This works on its own. And then ultimately, when it does appear in the film, it works for what it is in the movie. So very well written in that regard, because you can have multiple interpretations. You're not locked into the visual interpretation of the song from the film. So I did like this song, and I was familiar with the song. This was a huge single at the time. Oh, wow. By the way, Brian Adams, just as an aside, is another one of those guys that been around forever. He's like the hugest selling artist in Canada. Yeah. And I have the Dave Matthews response to him. It is like middle of the road stuff to me. I don't seek it out. It doesn't bother me, but it's not somebody I go, oh my God, it's Brian Adams. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. It's just always fair to Midland music for me. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that might also be a hot take because somebody loves him. He's the biggest selling artist in Canada, as I mentioned. Yeah, Canadians. So I listen to more Brian Adams on this project than I probably have <laughs> in my entire life. Well, you're very welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Mr. Adams for finally getting my dad to listen to you. 
So this is actually my favorite version of this song on the album. I like the version that appears in the movie, but it's more toned down. And I like this one because for a movie soundtrack that is a little bit verging on the ballad side, this has some hard rocking stuff in it. And I really, really like this version. I like it more than the actual movie version, which I believe is when he is born. It's early in the film when he's first born. And that's what makes the interpretation of the lyrics a little different when we get to it, is that I actually, before I watched the movie, had a different feeling of the song. Mm-hmm. And then that interpretation made more sense in the context of the film. And that's because it is toned down. It's gentle. It's gentle. It feels like a new baby, right? That's exactly right. That's my point. That one sounds like someone is welcoming a child to the world. Right. And this one doesn't feel that way. No, it doesn't. And I hear what you're saying about it sounds like a love song. For me, having seen the movie and knowing the other version of the song is when he's born and when he's starting to experience his world and his family for the first time. But because this one is at the end, after he's returned to his family, he's reclaimed his rightful place as the leader of the herd, right? So this here I am, to me, feels like self-actualization or like coming into your own standing in your power as an adult. So I didn't really take the love song angle of it. I just more interpret it as he's where he's meant to be now. Here I am. I'm back. I'm ready to take my place as your leader. But you have to see that in the movie, Abigail, because that's the only place that you see a herd. When you read the lyrics of the song, it says, here I am. It's just me and you. Tonight we make our dreams come true. That implies two people. It doesn't imply a herd. No, you're right. And that's where I got into that. Because remember, I did it before I watched the movie. Yeah, you're exactly right. After you watch the movie and the placement of this, remember, this is kind of a reprise of the song at the end, over the end credits. It's a callback to what back at the beginning of the movie and now he's lived this whole existence and had all these adventures and he's back where he belongs and in that context it makes sense i'm going to forgive this song for being on here twice because of that Mm -hmm. but i also would have put him in the other order oh yes right this is the big single so i understand why it's first on the album but it would have felt so much more triumphant toward the end of the album as a reprise I absolutely agree. I think it was a completely bizarre choice to have this open the album as the end title. And like you, I have issues with the sequencing of this album. I felt the same way on Xanadu. Xanadu kind of did the same thing where it split it in half and all the Olivia Newton-John stuff was first and all the ELO stuff was second, even though in the movie they were mixed together. In this one, all the lyrics stuff is first for the most part. And then all the instrumental stuff is second. And it's not a good sequence. <laughs> in my opinion. In the Xanadu thing we talked about, if you just put them on the album in the order of the movie, it would almost tell you the story, right? Right. And you can have a similar argument here, although, you know, you want to sprinkle the instrumentals around a little bit just to break up that very long. See, there's two seven-minute instrumentals in that package. Yeah. I think it's 22 minutes of instrumental music in a row. Which, you know, I don't have any problem with instrumental music, you know that. But I think in an album, you're trying to sequence an album of a soundtrack. If you split that up, maybe you slow down the album a little bit by putting them in there that way. But you also highlight them more. Right. You got to zone out when you play all four of them in a row. You don't get to focus on any one particular instrumental. I definitely would break up the instrumentals. And I definitely would put the Brian Adams songs 
in the order that they played in the film. Yeah, I would put all of them in the order they play in the film. You could get away with the instrumentals not necessarily need to be chronological, just to space them out the way you wanted to space them out. But to tell the story of the film, because the songs really do tell the story of the film, they deserve to be chronological, I think. Yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to say up front that I forgot. So the horses don't talk in this movie. There are large parts of this movie where there is no dialogue. And... Spirit technically had a voice actor, Matt Damon, who sort of, he'll say like witty quips and stuff in Spirit's voice. He narrates a little bit. Yeah, it's not much. So really the songs, I mean, Brian Adams is the voice of Spirit more so I think than Matt Damon because the songs are really Spirit's internal monologue. And when Wally came out, people talked a lot about, oh, I'm so emotionally invested in these characters and they don't talk. Spirit was kind of the first example of that, in my opinion. The horses are incredibly anthropomorphic in the fact that they use facial expressions and you can tell exactly what their emotions are. They're animated in a very creative way where essentially it's human facial expressions superimposed onto horse faces. Right, right. But you can tell what they're feeling. And I think that's very clever and very creative. And I am emotionally attached to the horses, even though they don't have any dialogue. I have a feeling that the Matt Damon stuff, like they tested it without it. And people gave some comments back then and they went and retconned that Matt Damon stuff. That's just my personal feeling on that because maybe I would like to see this movie without the Matt Damon dialogue. I, I found that to be an unnecessary thing. To me, the story is pretty straightforward. Yeah, the story is very straightforward. It, the narration, I, I there are some like little jokes and one-liners that he says that I think are quite humorous. And I think that's nice. And that feels like you're reading a book from the narrator's perspective and you're getting their internal thoughts, right? But like you, I don't find it necessary for the progression of the story at all. All right. Going to move on to track number two. Of course. So track number two is called I Will Always Return. Still feel your breath on my skin. I hear your voice deep within the sound of my love. I feel him so strong. Oh, it's to you. I'll always belong. Now I know it's true. So one thing you're going to notice about the clips today is they're kind of all over the place because there's a lot of music leading into the songs. Again, it's a soundtrack. Sometimes there's a long tail on the songs. So I tried to pick clips that got to the nature of the story. So a lot of them are in the middle without a lot of music leading up to it because of that. Without the context of the movie, this came across to me as a love ballad among separated lovers, two people who were apart and that distance was bothering the narrator of the song. Again, 
no context that he's separated from a herd and he's trying to get back to a herd. So it's, you're looking at individuals, the way the song is written. This song does not appear in the movie at all. This song is written like it was designed to be the second single because it's a different version of a song that does appear in the movie that didn't get released as a single. Like it's totally unnecessary on the album. Is it my least favorite? No, but I would scrap this one. Oh, wow. If I was resequencing this and leave the original in because by the time you get to that point of the film, the context is provided and it ends the film and it ends musically with the absolute final notes of music you're going to hear in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I like it in that slot. And so I think I would pull this off the album to try to shorten the album up a little bit. As much as I like it, I don't dislike this song at all. I think it's beautiful, but I don't think it's necessary. Listen, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. However, this is my on the cusp song on this album. I can see that. And again, this is my favorite version of this song on this album which as you said the finale of the movie is this song but i would argue that this is where i belong is also this song just with different words <laughs> the music is exactly the same so of the three versions of this song <laughs> on this album this is my favorite and i understand that it was written to be a single it sounds like it was written to be a popular song it's big and sweeping and the instruments are so bold and it's gorgeous. I can't help but love it, even though it's not the version that's in the movie. But I find this one so much more beautiful. And songs about coming home and always being welcome home and always finding your way home, those always get to me. Those themes always have a special place in my heart. So I was very prepped to love these lyrics in particular. But you understand it's only a coming home song when you see it in the context of the movie as he comes home. The lyrics don't really say that. It says that with the pictures underneath of it. It tells that story both as a visual and an auditory experience in the movie. And so I would argue that the other version's more emotional than this version. Yes, but coming home is an emotional experience. When I say I'm attracted to songs about coming home and stuff, it's not the physical act of traveling home. It's the emotional welcome and it's the emotional safety. You know, that's what gets to me about the songs about coming home. And the lyrics in the song literally say, I will always come home. <laughs> yes, but when you don't know the film, home is the person. Yeah, I know. It's a pair of people that are separated and I'm coming home means I'm coming back to you. That's why it played more like a love song among these two people who were separated. But you could also say that coming home means coming back to your family. It's the same emotional resonance. Yeah, sure. It's not about the physical act. I mean, for him, it is because this movie is very tied to the land and the landscapes and his place in the world, right? But in the end, he came back to his family. He came back for his family. So regardless of the land and the physical place, like I, I still think our interpretations have exactly the same emotional resonance that you're talking about. Yeah. I'm just saying I found the other version more emotional for whatever reason than this one, because it's a little stripped down, a little more orchestral because it is to end the soundtrack. And by the way, you reference the land, you know, I want to swim in your river, be warmed by your sun. That's referencing the land that he's gone back to. But if you're just interpreting it as a love song, it doesn't have to be the physical space. When I'm swimming in your ocean. Yes, it can be the emotional attachment I have to you as a person. Right. Having been able to do this without seeing the film was fun because you could explore other interpretations 
you, now you're locked into it when you see the movie. You know exactly what it's about. Also, when he actually does go back to his family at the end of the movie, he now has this romantic partner. So there's the double emotions there of I'm coming home, but I'm also bringing someone else home. Somebody back from college. <laughs> right, right. Bring, bringing a girl <laughs> home, right? But someone for whom you will now be family and you will now be home. So there's so many layers to it. And I love this song so much. By the way, just another sort of inconsistency in the film. When he goes back home, I was talking about, well, how long did this story take place? When he left, remember there were the two little like twin horses. Mm -hmm. They're the same size when he comes. Oh no, that's a problem. That threw me off my game. But doesn't it? And I did not rewatch the movie for this episode. What? I know. I know. I should have. I just ran out of time. How incomplete. I know. I give you a C for this class. Wow. I didn't know you had a school (laughs) now and you're giving out grades. I didn't sign up for that. All right. I'm going to move on to track three now. Track number three is called You Can't Take Me. So this is my second favorite song on the album. Me too. Yeah. It's one of the handful of rockers, true rockers on the album. Oh yeah. So my initial interpretation, just in listening to it without the context of the movie, it seemed like a song about fighting and resisting against some unknown force, you know, whatever that might be, that spirit of independence. I did think musically there was a tribal or a Native American quality to some of the melody. I know it's played on a synthesizer, but there was a pattern to that melody that made me think about tribal music, Native American tribal music in particular. And even the whoa, ho, ho in the part that I played has a little bit of that tribal sound to it. So it's interesting in the movie, this has nothing to do with the Native Americans. This is the scene where he's been caught by the troops for the first time and he's being led back to the fort and he's struggling. He's resisting this because he doesn't know what ropes are and he doesn't know anything that's happened to him. So it's a pretty intense song in that it's almost like an overnight walk and he's struggling the whole way. And as the sun comes up, it's the first time he sees this fort. So it, in the movie, it's also very powerful. This was one of two songs that I gave two stars on the first pass, and it held up. And like I say, second favorite. Yeah, I think you nailed it in your description. I don't have much to add. This has been one of my favorites since the very beginning. I came into this thinking I knew what my top three were, and they did not change at all. <laughs> oh, wow. And I do listen to this album not regularly, but on occasion. So I've sort of kept up with my opinions on it throughout the years, but I knew exactly what my top three were going to be. And this has always, always been one of my two favorites 
I agree with you that it has such intensity, both on its own musically, and then when paired with the visuals, it takes on even more. I mean, I mean, you said you were able to understand the meaning of the song completely before even seeing the visuals. But when you get those visuals of him with all the ropes and he's draining to break free from the ropes, it's really intense. And I mean, this movie is very emotional and, and very intense throughout. But this is kind of the first moment in the movie where you're like, oh my gosh, like this horse is going to go through it. <laughs> but my point was the song about resisting could be in any context. Mm-hmm. It works even if you don't know the context of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a message there. And then over top of the visuals that they created, it works that much better. Now it's a specific story, if that makes sense. Now when you listen to it, you can't unsee that. So now it's a song about that. Right. Whereas before I watched the film, it could have been a song about a union organizer. You know what I'm saying? Like a worker who's had enough. You could use it in many different contexts, maybe with the Native American tribal element to it that limits the possibilities. But lyrically, it could be anybody resisting any, like what I describe it as an unknown force any unknown force Mm -hmm. i'm going to suggest that we rate this first beer that's a great plan yeah so again we're drinking the first of four of the green zebra series from founders brewing these are fruit flavored gozes this is the watermelon and i've got nothing but great things to say about this i'm giving this a four i think this is really really good for a multitude of reasons not the least of which is i really believe it's natural watermelon but flavorful enough to identify it in there it's subtle but it's there and very easy to drink A little more tart as it's warmed up, I think. But I'm giving this a four. So I'm going to give this a 3.75. I like it very much. It's delicious. I still have not been able to identify the watermelon very strongly. I can tell that it's fruity, but I can't specifically taste watermelon, which I'm not really minding that much because it's a delicious beer anyway. The tartness is nice and subtle. I mean, it's there, but it's not difficult to drink this beer at all. It's really light and just truly delicious. So I'm going to give it a 3.75. And I hope that the others in the series will have a little bit more identifiable um, whatever fruit is listed on the can. Well, that's why we're drinking them in our projected increasing intensity of flavor, right? Yes. I would say so far, your order is correct. Well, yeah. how can you judge that? You've only had one. (laughs) The watermelon was not very strong. All right. How about we move on to the peach then? I would love to. So here's our zebra on the peach can. Also anthropomorphic zebra faces on the cans. This is what I'm saying. I'm pretty sure Spirit made this exact face in the movie. He had to at least one frame. (laughs) I'm sure if you went cell by cell through the movie. There are Facebook pages that do that. They take frame by frame of DreamWorks movies and they post them. So I'm sure that Spirit's up there at some point. Did you see the clip that was out lately? There was a thing about how Disney used to archive all their drawings. Yes. And so in subsequent films, people would go look at the, what they called the, what they call that, the morgue, I think, and look at old scenes for inspiration. But sometimes they just wholesale ripped them off. They just used them again. Yeah. I saw a scene of Christopher Robin walking through the woods that looked exactly like Mowgli walking through the woods and jumping log to log and all this. The one I saw was in Robin Hood. Robin Hood and Maid Marian have a little dance and it's the same dance as in the Aristocats when the two cats are dancing. By the way, this film was directed by Kelly Asbury, good friend of your Uncle Steve's. Kelly wrote a series of children's books that we own that were red, yellow, and blue. And I got to go find the exact titles. I don't know that we still have them, but there were three books that had these really cool graphics and everything. And it was red or yellow or blue. I bought them uh, for you guys. Hmm, I don't remember this. I can't remember if Kelly 
autographed him or not. I don't, I don't remember. But anyway, I was, when I was watching his name popped up as the director, I was like, oh my God, another circle is closed. All right. So the next one up, like I said before, is the Green Zebra Peach. I'm going to take my initial sip. By the way, the color is not too dissimilar from the previous one. Oh no, it's not. This one definitely tastes like peach. Yes. And fresh peach, right? Fresh peach, fresh ripe peach. This is amazing. Go get them, Green Zebra. This is so good. And by the way, I don't think I mentioned this on the last one. These are very low ABV beers. 4.6 was the watermelon. Oh, wow. And the peach is exactly 4.6. But yeah, the peach flavor is very pronounced and very natural tasting. Agreed. It's delicious. I don't know what else to say. Lightly tart, sweet. But not too sweet, just enough sweet to offset the tart and make it so that you know you're drinking peach. <laughs> a great accidental find. That one is delicious. So Founders has Shirregular goes called Green Zebra. So I'm pretty sure these are just the same brew with the fruit added. So they probably will all be the same ABV. And I don't know that I've ever had that one. Let me go to my untapped notes. I have not. It's funny when I put it in. They also had years. You were, we were talking about, oh, we think it's a limited release. Mm -hmm. Here's Green Zebra 2023. Here's Green Zebra 2017, no longer in production. Mm -hmm. Green Zebra Pineapple, which we're drinking, no longer in production. But there may be a 2024 version. Here's Green Zebra with Cucumber, no longer production, but also not in this set. I would love to try that one. Well, based on this, it'd be very interesting to try it. Wow. Good find. Okay. Yeah. Good find. Myself. Good find. Wandering <laughs> around the store looking for horses. Good find. <laughs> Why'd you buy that beer? Oh, well, I liked that there was a horse-like creature on the label, and I'm talking about a horse movie. We're simple creatures, you and I. <laughs> All right. I'm going to move on now to track number four. Track number four is called Get Off of My Back. Take me on, you must be crazy There ain't a single thing you've done That's gonna phase me Oh girl, if you wanna have a go I just wanna let you know I'm sure this is no surprise when I tell you this is my favorite song on the album. Dad, me too. No shock. It's the other rocker. Yep. This was the other one I said first time through. I went, boom, two stars. Again, another song about fighting back, similar to the previous song with no context on a movie. It works anyway. Mm -hmm. But in the film, this is the scene where at the fort, they're trying to break him and multiple people are getting on top of him and trying to train him and it's not going well for the writers. So the sequence in the film is really good. The song is really good. This cuts to the visuals amazingly well. Probably one of the better sequences in the movie as far as fun. He's got the upper hand, even though he's in dire circumstances. So when I say it, it's fun, it's the one time he, even though he's in confinement, seems to have the upper hand on these guys. I mean, this is the moment where he's really giving it to the colonel. So 
even in the movie, that just makes it that much better of a song. But the song itself, it stands on its own. It's a really good song. Agreed. This is also one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's just pure fun. You get to root for the horse. He is in trouble, right? He's been captured, but he's really showing it to them. And um, the Native American who he runs off with is kind of watching this all go down. No, no. I think this happens... Before that, he's tied to the post as a result of this. Oh, okay. With no food and water. And that's when they bring in, I forget the character's name. It's like Cloud Dancer or something like that. The Native American character has a name. But they bring him in while the horse is tied to the post. And they tie that character to the post as well. Got it. So they're there together. And then the colonel thinks he's broken the horse through the starvation plan and gets on him. And that's when that whole scene ensues where he and the Native American actually escape. So the Native American doesn't get to see this sequence. Well, that's a bummer. So, like you said, this song stands alone, but when you've seen the movie and know that he's literally throwing people off his back, it's even cooler. Because, I mean, I say get off my back all the time. It has a metaphorical meaning. But it's so much fun when the horse is literally throwing people off his back. I just think it's so delightful. This is also the song where I have my only entry today in the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly About Music. Wow. And it's a very weird thing that I heard. Okay. I have another clip there for you to play from this song. This occurs late in the song, practically at the end, I believe. Get off of my Any ideas? The whistling? Yeah. I think it's probably an electronic keyboard there, but it sounds like whistling. I mean, the only like big whistling song I know is that Peter Bjorn and John song. No. Go to your old Spotify and pull up the song Windy by the Association. Okay. Well, I've never heard of this one, so I never would have gotten <laughs> this anyway. All right. I have it. I need you to go to the musical bridge at about 105. What a pull. Do you hear it? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, of course I hear it. <laughs> I instantly heard that when I heard that. Wow. And it's not the same melody, but it's close. It's, it's really close. It's like it changes up a little bit at the end, but it's very similar. So, yep, there it is. There's my entry for credit from the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking Smartly About Music. How did I do, Professor? It's amazing. I'm actually very impressed that you pulled that one because it's such a <laughs> tiny little piece, but I love it. Well, like you say, if you think of it, you're probably on the right track. Yep, absolutely. Going to move on now to track number five. Track number five is called Brothers Under the Sun. Follow your heart. Child of the West Wind Follow the voice That's calling you home Follow your dreams But always remember me I am your brother 
sun. So this one falls towards the bottom for me. Interesting thing, it does not appear in the actual film. It's the last song you hear over the end credits. This is the final song. Uh, the melody is used quite a bit in the film, mm -hmm. in the instrumentals. I think I have an example of that pulled in one of the instrumentals. And out of the context of the movie, it just seems like there's two friends that are separated but are yearning to be back together is how I kind of read the lyrics. When you watch the film, who are the two brothers? Again, this is not included in the movie with lyrics, right? So you never see this over top of a sequence. My assumption would be Spirit and the Native American. That's correct. Well, here's the thing. I'm not sure I really fully grasped this concept when I was watching it as a kid, but now I just keep thinking, yes, there's a clear distinction between how he's treated by the United States military versus how he's treated by the Native Americans. But when it boils down to it, they're both the villains of the movie because he just wants to be free. Yes. So... While they are not morally equivalent, there is a moral equivalency there that is interesting to think about and discuss from the perspective of a horse who just wants to live his life. So lyrically, it's a little weird because to your point, it was like, he's still an oppressor. He's not by the end of the movie, obviously, but he's still an oppressor. Are they really old friends yearning to be together? I, it Lyrically... It kind of doesn't really fit either. I wonder if it was written for the film and it didn't work. I don't know the circumstances of it. I assume it's the theme of the Native American character. Mm. The melody of this is his theme. It's used over top of scenes with him. But I feel like this is a song that got tagged on at the end of the end credits. But it's another one that I would probably just not have on the album. I don't think it adds anything to the film. I am on the same page. This is towards the bottom for me as well. It's interesting that you were saying by the end of the movie, he's no longer an oppressor. And so this song makes a little more sense from Spirit's perspective as a mutual respect that they gained for each other through these adventures they've had together. Because ultimately, I mean, the Native American man does free spirit at some point. Of so, course. And his other horse. Yeah. I mean, again, it's morally complicated, right? He was an oppressor. He learned something from that and freed spirit, but he probably also has other horses. But I do understand where the meaning of the song could come from, given that it is at the very, very end of the movie after they've been through all these things together and they've rescued each other and they've sort of come to a mutual respectful understanding of each other by the end of the film but i agree i could do without this song at the point you're reading about this you're reading about mr katzenberg's you're reading the credits to the point where you're, mr katzenberg's assistant <laughs> here's the location shoot those people are important too don't i'm not saying they're not but you thought so highly of the song that's where you stuck it great point if you buried it that deep in the credits i'm not sure it's required listening for those of us who buy an album well especially in the track five slot right well going back to the point about put some of these things in the order that they were yeah if this were the last track on the album which would be weird because the one that i make the case for the last track that ends it with the orchestral thing that ends the movie you might want to put this like just inside of that because he's heading home at that point but he can still share this we're brothers under the sun thank you for letting me go that might have been a slot to put this that takes us to track number six which is a duet featuring Sarah McLaughlin, and that's the song Don't Let Go. I can't believe this moment's come. It's so incredible that we're alone. There's so much to be said and done. 
It's impossible not to be overcome Will you forgive me if I feel this way? Cause we just met Tell me that's okay Take this feeling Make it grow Never let it Never nice enough song right it's a duet the weird thing is it doesn't appear in the movie it's the penultimate song you know as you're going through the credits this is the one that precedes the last track we just played why you would go to the effort of having a guest artist do a duet there's clearly a sequence in the movie where this i think this song was written for the sequence where the native american ties spirit to rain because rain has the ability to walk around free but comes back right she's had stockholm syndrome so she's part of the tribe at this point right so he ties the other horse to her and they have this adventure together rope to rope and i suspect that this was probably designed to go over top of that and didn't work and by the way you don't need it that sequence is fabulous agreed so i feel like they went through the efforts on this song it didn't really work they stuck it on at the credits and on this album, is it necessary? Is it unnecessary? I think this one's fine to keep. I think you could put it in the sequence of the story where maybe that sequence happened in the film if you were making these songs chronological, and that would be totally fine because I do think it's a nice song. I think the duet's really interesting. I think the way they sing those choruses is really well done. It's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I can appreciate the song for what it is. And so it's middle of the pack for me. This is my least favorite song. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. I just don't care for it. Over the seven minute instrumental. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, now that we have a clue as to what your least favorite is. Well, I didn't say that. I was just saying that I was other examples of music on the album. I mean, part of it is that it is nowhere to be found in the film. I never got this late in the credits. I never would have heard this song. Of course not. You'd restarted the movie by then. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if Sarah McLaughlin is supposed to be Rain, that is not at all how I would have cast the voice of Rain. I don't know why, but that feels not right. She's a beautiful singer, but she's a little operatic for me, I think. And I just don't care for this song. But do you consider that Brian Adams then is cast as Spirit? Yeah, absolutely. Or is it Matt Damon? No, no. I think Brian Adams is spirit in these songs. But that's the voice you would have cast. Yeah. That raspy Canadian. Matt Damon's is not like dissimilar enough to make me bump on it. Well, why not just let Brian Adams read that stupid narration then? Why go to the exercise of hiring Matt Damon? Yeah, to say all of like 20 words in the whole movie. Well, it's more than 20, but yeah, it's not very much and not very necessary. The other thing on this song was I thought it sounded a lot like Xanadu. Really? Yeah, it's like a synth ballad duet. And that's like a lot of Xanadu. <laughs> Maybe this would have been better served if we had cast Olivia Newton-John as Rain. <laughs> you know what? I would have liked to hear it. Two non-Americans about this story of American history. 
All right. Shall we move on to track seven? Please. <laughs> Try to get that Sarah McLaughlin out of your head. <laughs> track seven is called This Is Where I Belong. I hear the wind across the plain. A sound so strong that calls my name. It's wild like the river. It's warm like the sun. It's here. This is where I belong. Under the starry skies where eagles have flown. This place is paradise. It's the place I call home. The moon on the mountain. The whisper through the trees. everything that's here and when we're all together there's nothing to fear so that was a little bit of a long clip because god does he sing slow in this song <laughs> like you can't get anywhere this one's a little too ballady for me i think the lyrics are interesting so without the context of the movie i had written down homecoming in my mind and i think this harkens back to something you said earlier about this is another version of the other song it is this is essentially the same theme and so i had written a note homecoming i thought oh this seems to me like a story about coming home. Mm -hmm. And if I was going to put it somewhere in my head in the movie, it would have been when he returned home. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that was a scene in the movie until I watched the film. What's interesting is it's very early in the movie. This is the song that really introduces him as the grown-up stallion, the leader of the herd. So a lot of that imagery about the Wild West and the starry skies and the eagles flying and the trees and the mountains. It's the herd free in their territory. It's a pretty mellow song for that. It might been nicer i have a little higher energy song for this like he's the triumphant leader of the herd so again it's a little too ballady for me and even in the movie i think it's a little too ballady for that sequence this one's kind of toward the bottom for me because of that yeah this one is fine in my opinion but like i said not just thematically but the melody is the same as i will always return both versions and we've already heard my favorite version of that melody and like you said, that high energy single version may have worked better in the film sequence, just with the different words about being where he belongs and all the imagery of the nature and everything he loves about his home. Because you're right, it is slow and he sings really slow. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, this proves the point or maybe opens up that discussion again about Brian Adams's handed melodies from the composer right. to write lyrics. And so that's why I think some of these themes get reused because we're focusing on the themes presented by Hans Zimmer and putting lyrics to that. Yeah. And that may be why there is similarities in the melodies in some of these songs, because we're basing it on what we know to be Spirit's theme. Right, right. These are the songs that include Spirit's theme. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've been through four songs. I think we got to wrap up our discussion of the Peach Zebra. 
think you're right. I am going to go with the same rating I gave the last one. I'm going to give this one a four also. I think this has stayed pretty consistent, even though it's warmed up a little bit. Whereas in the other one, I thought the watermelon popped a little bit more and the tartness popped a little bit more. On this one, it's stayed pretty consistent, but it tastes like a fresh peach. No lie. It really does. It's really good and very easy to drink. Yep. I'm going to go 4.0 on this one. Wow. You're moving up a peg. I liked it that much more than the watermelon because How about that? just like you said, it tastes like biting into a fresh peach, but it has that tartness to it that I just love so much. So it's a 4.0. And I do want to say they're not super tart. No. I mean, you said this would be a good starter beer for someone who's not a sour yeah, drinker. This is very similar to what we said about mm-hmm. the last one. It is fabulous. All right. I think that makes it uh, pineapple next, right? I think that's right. This one's a girl zebra. You know that because she has eyelashes. (laughs) We will call her Rain. We'll call her Rain. She has a very sly look about her too. Now, this one's a little bit more on the golden yellow side, color-wise. Not too dissimilar from the other ones. By the way, they're all just slightly cloudy. I didn't mention that before. And not much foam. They're effervescent, but they don't leave a lot of foam. Maybe a Dave Zalator's half finger of foam. It's interesting that they call this a goes style ale as opposed to a ghost. I wonder if they did not include salt because I haven't been able to detect salt in any of these. No, you're right. I mean, salt is a definition of a ghost. Man, these are a home run. You know, that's good too, but the pineapple is so subtle. I get it a little, little bit at the very end of the sip. I kind of have to exhale into my mouth and then I can taste it. What? That's a Hummel trick. (laughs) Does that make sense? It does for me. (laughs) You know why? Yeah, I get to retaste things aromatically. Ew. (laughs) It's a skill. But I think I'm with you in the sense that I do like that one. But I think of the three, this is my least favorite of the three. Only because I expected the flavor to be more intense with this one than it is. Agreed. And also, pineapple itself is already a rather tart fruit. So there's less sweetness in this one than the other two. That's correct. I think the other two were better because that sweetness was very nicely balanced in there. And this one, because the starting fruit is so tart, it's not too tart for me. I just think it lacks the sweetness that made the other two so great. This one's going to be a more acidic fruit. That might be why it's less sweet. Yeah. I think that's probably why I've got it down a smidge. Is it a quarter point less? I don't know the answer to that. Again, tenths would help me here. As you know, tenths would always be of help. That's not an option for me today, so. Wow. Two Pete Co. jingles on the same beer today. (laughs) Well, they're low ABV, so we can't play the, uh, or we could play it just for the sake of playing it. Let's play it. What the hell? But they're not tall boys, so it's even less relevant. We we don't have any reason to play it, except I said play it. We don't. Okay, fine. (laughs) Vertically challenged. For the first time ever, three Pete Co. jingles on the same beer, one of which didn't even have a reason to be played. A Pete Co. hat trick, as we call it in the business. A natural hat trick. They were all in a row. Yeah. Anyway, moving back to the album, we're not quite halfway through. It's a long album. I know. It's a long album. By the way, his name is, what did you guess? Dancing Cloud? I guessed Cloudburst. No, you didn't. I think you guessed Dancing Cloud. Well, it's on tape, so we'll figure it out. But what, what is it? Little Creek. I was close. You were not even close. It has a C in it. Yeah, in the second <laughs> word, not even the first word. Dancing Cloud, Little Creek. 
It's the right number of syllables and the C's in the right spot. Give me some credit. All right, fine, fine. Listen, I watched the movie one time. I think you actually said Cloud Dancer, I think, is what you did say. Did I? I think so. All right, I'm going to move on now to track number eight. It's just like we're starting the album all over again because we're going to play Here I Am. Uh, chose a fun clip on that one. Okay, so here's why I did that. This song is the birth scene, the very beginning of the movie. It's actually the first vocal song you hear. So before I watched the movie, I wrote down, reads more like a song about a birth with the slower tempo. And the long instrumental outro is more cinematic, but it's an odd structure. I wrote, it probably makes sense in the film. So you couldn't release this as a single. Right. Like they re-engineered it as a single. Right. A little quicker tempo, a little more rock and roll than this song. But this version hits the notes of what it was really about in the movie better. I even picked that up before I saw the film. I didn't know there was a birth scene in the movie. I didn't know. So when I saw it over top of the birth scene, it made total sense to me. My question is on the album, why include the other version? Open up with this. It's the birth scene. Or open up with the main title, which is an instrumental. Get this in there early because it is about the birth of the baby. And release the other one as a single. That's fine. You don't have to have the single on the album. Of course, I guess in 2002, there wasn't a way to really stream or buy a single digitally. Yeah. So a lot of this was probably included on the album because it was just sort of like pile everything on the album. Right. Anyway, this one has this long extended instrumental piece as part of the track. Well, that's when he's learning to stand and walk and he's exploring a little. And so I really liked that part that you played. I can't identify what instrument it is. Some sort of woodwind, maybe? I don't know. But it's like the... It sounds very much like a child taking its first steps gentle and cautious and curious and i think that motif is repeated in rain which makes a lot of sense because they're sort of cautious and curious about each other at first as well so yeah i think this song is really well done and that's why i said i like the clip that you played because i like that we get a little bit of that where you can really tell that the instrumentals on this album are really well crafted to match what's going on in the story. This was almost my least favorite when I listened to it just as a song. Oh, wow. Because it had the instrumental piece, which is about half the song. Mm -hmm. It's a weird structure, mm -hmm. right? As a song, I'm evaluating songs as songs. Then after I watched the movie, I kind of took that off the table because in the terms of a soundtrack, it worked very well. Yeah. It told the story of the birth and then it was his young life, you know, before he advanced in age and became the leader of the herd. So... That's why I wanted to focus on the transition, because that's a weird, unique part of this song, mm -hmm. which made it as an individual song really hard to evaluate 
out of context. Yeah. And way easier to evaluate having watched the movie. Interesting. There were instrumentals and there were vocal performances. And then there was this one. Yeah. Which was both. Yeah. And such an odd structure that I went, I don't know if I like that. Well, this is the one where the collaboration between Brian Adams and Hans Zimmer is the most obvious. Yes. Yes. Because it sounds like an orchestral song that lyrics were written to. And that's exactly what it was. Well, the point I'm going to make on track nine is in the movie, it's the same thing. It's a vocal performance that moves into an instrumental, but on the disc, track nine moves into track 10. It's two tracks. But there's no gap. It's seamless. Yeah. But this is not like that. Right. This is one track, but it's the same weird structure. Yeah. I think I appreciated it more when they said, this is track nine and this is track 10, than I did here as track eight was both parts all encompassing. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So that takes us to track nine, which is the last of the first collection of vocal songs. And that's the song Sound the Bugle. Sound the bugle down. Play it just for me. As the seasons change, remember how I used to be. Now I can't go on. I can't even start. I got nothing left, just an empty heart. I'm a soldier, wounded soul. I must give up the fight There's nothing more For me Lead me away Or leave me lying here This one is toward the bottom for me. It's another really slow, ballady thing, maybe a little too slow. On its face, before I watched the movie, I thought it was a song about the end of life. Like I literally mm. thought somebody was injured and lying injured and just leave me be. I'm just here to die. Like I said before, this just blends into track 10. So it's not one extended track. But the reason it does that is this is in the film, the scene where he's being transported by train to this train work site where they're going to use the horses to tow this engine up a hill. And he's on the train and he's really looking out the window of the train and remembering his family and all the stuff that he's losing. But I find it interesting that the lyrics there, that the part about there's nothing more for me, leave me away or leave me lying here kind of harkens back to at this point, just before this in the movie, Rain, his love interest in the movie, is injured mm -hmm. and he leaves her lying there, which is kind of a callback to that. Well, he leaves her with Little Creek. Well, he doesn't know that, I don't think. And at that point, you don't know whether she's going to live or die anyway. You just see Little Creek come out to be by her side. But I think he's captured and forced to leave before Little Creek ever comes out. Remember, because the troops go, oh, just leave her there. She's not going to make it. Mm -hmm. So that dialogue about lying there is interesting to me. That's not what's visually happened in the film, mm -hmm. but it is a callback to what he had just been through prior to being captured the second time. But anyway, it's a really depressing sequence in the movie. It's a depressing song. It has merit on the soundtrack. So if you were resequencing the soundtrack, this definitely belongs on there. It's like the nadir of the movie for the horse. He totally has no control in this sequence. It's not like the other places where he could fight back. He's resolved himself that there is no fighting back. He has no idea what's going on. He's on this vehicle he's never seen before. He's being transported to some location he doesn't know. It's snowing outside where they're going through, so it's bleak. And it's the lowest point in the movie, I think, for him. 
And the song reflects that. Is that fun to listen to? Nah, not really. It's a real downer for me. So this is my third favorite song. Wow. So we matched on the first two and then we have very disparate third choices, I see. And listening to you talk about it, you've left out my favorite part of the whole song, which is when he's imagining his family running outside the train and the entire song changes when his resolve shifts. So yes, the first part of the song is very depressing and the lyrics reflect that he's essentially given up. He's broken now, which is what everyone has spent the entire movie trying to do is break him. He is finally at that point. And then he has this hallucination or this vision of his family running outside alongside the train and the tone of the song shifts, his mentality shifts. He's now reinvigorated, redetermined to get free. And the song becomes, it, it's still slow, but the instrumentation builds. It becomes a lot more intense. And Brian Adams' voice has a hopefulness to it in the last verse and a half, maybe, that when the mood shifts, I just think that change is beautiful. And part of that is because I know what's happening in the movie when this song is playing. But part of that is inherent to the music changing itself. And I just think it's really beautiful. Obviously, listening to it in isolation at first, it didn't do much for me. And then does it play over top of that sequence? Well, yes. Did I get that much hopefulness out of it? I don't know that I got the same level of hopefulness out of it that you got hmm. watching it over top of the scene in the film. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. That in seeing the vision of his family running free may have given him the resolve to want to go back there. But the circumstances were so dire that in my head, I was like, how? Because remember, I think he's been transported who knows how many miles away at this point on a train. I don't know where this guy's going on this train. And that's why when Cloudburst, what's his name? Creekmonger? Little Creek. Little Creek. When Little Creek pops creek up. Creekmonger? <laughs> what? Little Creek He's selling up, creeks to the other Native Americans. When Little Creek pops up this far away, I find that to be odd. So the deus ex machina is that Little Creek is somehow tens or hundreds of miles away and happens to be in the right spot at the right time, which is a weird, I mean, that's just a weird plot device that still doesn't work for a certain degree to me. I mean, I assumed he just followed the train. I assumed he knew who took him and then followed the train tracks. So anyway, it didn't do much for me. Any. Wow. But I'm happy for you. Great, thanks. In your sadness. It's not sad, though. That's the point. At the end of the song, it's not sad. What's sad about the song is that he's given up. After everything he's been through, he always had the spirit that could not be broken, which is what Little Creek names him. Except in this scene, this is the first time where we do see that his spirit is broken. And that's what makes it sad. But then it's undone when he envisions his family. His spirit is no longer broken. He now knows in his heart that he will continue to fight back. And if he's fighting back, he's going to win. I don't think it reads as clearly on a first pass as you think it does. That's fair. But again, I've seen this movie probably 20 times. <laughs> I didn't pick that up in the song by itself. And I didn't pick it up in one viewing where I didn't know how it ended. So this is a song of hopelessness to me. Mm. And it played that way both without the film and with the film. I never got the hopefulness until he looked at the sunrise, sunset and realized the train was going west to his home. That was the moment I realized he'd been sparked to fight back, not on the train. Now, now that I know that, if I watch it again, 
that subtlety may be a little more obvious to me because I know what's coming. But the first time through, I'd say that's a little too subtle. And certainly kids aren't going to get that. Maybe. Again, I've always loved this song. Okay. I came into this knowing what my top three were going to be, and they were. I have loved this song since I was a kid. And I had no foreknowledge, so I'm working through my issues (laughs) in real time. All right, well, let's have a little break and go through some instrumental tracks. So the next four songs are four of the instrumental pieces of music by Hans Zimmer. And that starts off with track 10, Run Free. So this song, I put it at the transition because there's really two big pieces to it. It starts off kind of ominously. Yeah. And then it shifts and becomes a much more triumphant. My note that I wrote without knowing anything was it felt like an escape. Something bad was going on and then I'm going to escape from it. So it's interesting in the film, I think it's used in two different places. Mm. I think it's the same piece of music. The most obvious one is when he escapes from the train site. So some of that ominous stuff is, you know, he's disconnected the horses from the train and the train starts rolling down the hill, et cetera. And then he escapes from that. That's part, that's one sequence where it's used. And the other one is early on when he finds the camp and the ominous part is when he's poking around the camp Mm -hmm. and then they wake up and they start chasing him. And then it's the escape from the camp, but you know, it's basic soundtrack music and you can get enough just out of the tone and the tempo of the music to realize this is a chase where I feel like this is poking around something dark. And like you said before, Sound the Bugle on the album just goes seamlessly into the song. Yes. Which I love. I think that's great. It's interesting that you mentioned that you found similarities between this movie and Lion King because this song to me sounds very much like the Wildebeest sequence in The Lion King, which is both a chase and has ominous elements to it. So I heard that pretty immediately when I started prepping this album. This one plays like you can feel the story. Yeah. When you haven't seen the film, you can make up a story in your head. And when you see the film, it works perfectly over top of that. This is why I'm fascinated, even more so than musicians making music, which is obviously an incredible talent and skill and creative endeavor. But I think scoring is even more impressive and fascinating than just making music to be music, right? Because you have to make the music sound like what is happening visually. And what a unique challenge. I'm consistently so impressed with really good scores. And this is one of them, I think. Well, what's interesting about it is that if you listen to them in absentia without the film, They can have weird beats and turns because they really do follow the action of the edited film to a T. 
you know, it plays like classical music to a degree, but it's got odd beats to it because it's following a visual story that you don't have the privilege of seeing. It's not in front of you. So they are a category in and of themselves, if you follow what I'm trying to say. Oh, of course. So the next track, track number 11, it's called Homeland. It's the main title of the movie. This is the track that played over top of the opening credits. So this is a very majestic sweeping track. It's the opening of the film with the opening credits. It comes into the prologue of the birth. So the song about his birth follows this and is when he's up and kind of walking around. There was one shot in the birth scene where I actually went, oh no, don't do that. And they cut, they changed the angle. I was so glad because I thought for sure. I was gonna oh, say, you thought. <laughs> I thought the horse was going to come squirting out of some hindquarters. And I, I was not mentally prepared for that. Ew. This is what I do. I notice things. Anyway, I like this song a lot. It's not in my top songs. You'll notice that the melody is basically track two. It's the thing that and was supposed to be the other. track seven and track 15, actually. Exactly. This is spirit's <laughs> theme. So anytime yeah. we have a big spirit moment in the movie or a big spirit song, we use the similar melody because that's been tagged to him. That's how a lot of these uh, soundtrack artists work where they tag an individual theme to somebody. And then every time they're in the area or on screen or it's a big moment for them, that's the music they put in there to underscore that. So mm -hmm. I found it great that this opened the film. And if I were structuring the album, I would open with this. I would play this followed by the song about the birth just in that order. I think that's a fantastic way to do this album. There's no reason to shy away from the instrumentals yeah. in a soundtrack album. I agree. You're kind of cheating people by piling up all the vocal stuff, including songs that didn't even appear in the movie in a nine song package before you get to any of these instrumentals. And where those nine songs are not even in chronological order. In exactly. The, the choices are entirely bizarre. Yeah. They put the single... And then what I assume was the second single that they didn't bother releasing as a single and the first two slots and the sequencing is a train wreck from there. Truly. I appreciate this for what this is. This is the classic main theme of a movie done well. And I liked it very much. I think it's gorgeous. Orchestral music just does something to me. It, when it's so sweeping and the big sound of it all. I obviously love horns. We get a lot of horns, not necessarily in this song where they're most obvious, but in this package of instrumentals, we get a lot of horns. We get a lot of strings. We get a lot of woodwinds. And I really like the woodwinds and the drums in particular, 
because those are the two instruments that I feel give the most Western Native American musical vibes. And I think on these instrumentals, he did a good job of pulling in some Native American drum beats and woodwind sounds, as well as some Latin sounding guitar and some Latin sounding drums. That makes sense because this was roughly the same period as the Mexican-American War. It just all makes sense in terms of this musical buffet that we've been given. And I really, really love that. I think the drums in particular are really strong in this song. So this gets me really excited to hear the rest of the instrumentals on the album because it really is just a beautiful exploration of the music on this album. There's some drums he uses that give you sort of that military, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this military core that's out there too. You hear some of that. 100%. And the nice thing about this one is it's a self-contained song as a main theme. Basically, it's covering the credits. There are no left turns musically yeah so it plays just like a classical piece of music because you don't have to worry about the visuals you're telling a very concise thing with the main theme of the film this might be my favorite of the instrumentals i didn't rank any of them in the top three i considered it but i didn't end up going there so we have four tracks left which means we have to rate our pineapple zebra I am going to give this one a 375. I expected the pineapple to pop a little bit more as it warmed up. It did not. So I think the pineapple flavors more subtle than it could be, having had other pineapple flavored beers. Now, is it consistent with the other two? Absolutely. I guarantee it's fresh pineapple and it is quite consistent with the other two beers. As a package, these are really, really good. But this was of the three, my least favorite. And because I don't have tents, I'm going to drop it to a 375. I'm also going to give this a 375. But I just retasted the watermelon, and I think I like this marginally better than the watermelon. What are you mixing and matching up there in Gainesville? A little bit, yeah. I bet you could do a little mixology with these, and it would be really interesting. Mm. Because they are all similar, except for the main flavor. So I bet you could make something really tasty. I have plenty of them left. So maybe that's what I'll do when the episode airs, and I usually have my remaining beers. Maybe I'll do a little mixology session. That would be fun. Yeah, I don't like it a quarter of a point more than the watermelon, so I'm going to give it a 3.75. But like you said, the pineapple's hard to find, and it has a little less sweetness than the other two, just because pineapple's such a tart fruit. I enjoy it very much. I love tart, obviously. I just think the sweetness in the peach was like that little extra boost up, very well balanced in the peach, whereas this doesn't have that. So 3.75 for me. That leaves one more on the list, and that is the mango. He's a very stately looking character on the mango. He's spirit. It almost was a mirror image of the watermelon. Oh, yeah. But it's not. I've looked stripe by stripe and it's different. You know, every zebra has a unique stripe pattern. As unique as our fingerprints. While we're, you know, anthropomorphizing animals in this episode. Coolest place I ever saw zebras was uh, William Randolph Hearst owned a whole bunch of zoo animals when he had Hearst Castle up in Cambria, California. And they released zebras on his property. They roam free on this gigantic property that's up there. And we were driving up the Pacific Coast Highway, and there were these zebras right by the highway. Inside the fence. Yeah. Six or eight of them, I think. That's so crazy. We stopped the car. We got out. We took pictures. I'll have to see if those pictures are- Did you know what was going on at the time? Or Well, you hear the story on the tour about it. But I'd never seen them. I've been up and down that road quite a few times. I'd never seen them. And they were right there on the highway. That's so cool. Just roaming wild, having their spirit moment. Well, within the fence. All right. So I'm going to take a sip of this mango zebra. 
Oh, that one's the orangiest we've seen. It is. I think this one might even be too sweet for me. But whatever the sweetness is, it's coming from the fruit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitively mango. Of these fruits, you would expect that to be the sweetest. That's why we parked it last. I don't think I am into this one as much as the peach or the pineapple. Wow. I'm going to give it some thought. Of course, I will have to ponder it. All right. We have four tracks left, two of which are instrumentals. And the next one is one of the more fun songs on the album. That's the track Rain. So again, I first heard this without the benefit of the film. And so as I listened to it, I was intrigued that it was a plucky song that made you think about raindrops. And it kind of escalated a little bit. It got a little more intense as it went through, as if the storm was picking up. So when I watched the movie, there is no rain. Yeah. The horse's name is Rain. Yeah. And when she's around, generally speaking, this is the music that you hear. This is the theme for the mare rain but i like that they still use the rain drop element to the construction of the song so even though it's the horse's name he tied that into the weather phenomenon musically which made for an interesting song i thought of the four instrumentals this and the last one are the two that i like the most and again this is another short song like the previous song yeah i love this one too and between this one and the next one is my favorite instrumental I love this one because, like I said earlier, it starts off very gentle and cautious. They're kind of curious about each other. Then it grows in confidence as the song progresses. And I think that's so clever. A very, very cool application of the music expressing the interactions and the emotions of these two characters. And like you, I totally heard where rain as in the weather phenomenon could be reflected in this song and i think that was really cool too because obviously she was named after something so she may have some aspects to her personality that reminded little creek of rain and that's why he chose to name her that you know it all ties together it's just images at this point but it all works together and i love it again without watching the film that intensity that you described is the intensity of the storm. Right. And in the context of the film, it's when they're roped together, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you can see them being able to navigate around the environment better tied together with the rope. And as they get better at it, the music shifts gears and, and that confidence level does increase. And as they get more comfortable with each other too. Right. Yeah. It's really well done. So that takes us to track number 13. Track number 13 is called The Long Road Back.
So sadly, this is my least favorite song on the album. Oh, wow. It's not that I don't enjoy it. It's very slow and sad for the bulk of it. It's seven plus minutes long. So it's a real speed bump in the album. And what's really weird about that is if I had a seven minute song like that, I would have expected to be able to identify the seven minute sequence in the film where I could find this track. I couldn't. I heard elements of this song sprinkled here or sprinkled there. And so after watching the movie, this is when I put it in the bottom because I was like, Mm. I didn't need a seven minute song. Why have a seven minute song if it's not tied to a specific sequence of seven minutes in length? Why not break it into pieces or why not shorten it so I'm not sitting through seven solid minutes of a very slow song? So the only reason I put it in the bottom was because of that, because I felt like it was a real drag on the album in this position. And in the part I played, you can hear, again, the Brothers Under the Sun theme, the theme song of the two of them together. Or basically, I would say it would be uh, Little Creek's theme. Yeah. I guess more than anything, Brothers Under the Sun. The Long Road Back is the title. I would have expected some sort of struggle to get back to somewhere. And those are in there, but they're not seven minutes long in there. Yeah. (laughs) So they don't use all of it. So that's why I put it in the bottom. I feel like it was written as a piece of music. And then in the editing of the movie or the scoring of the movie, they chopped it up, right? But I do appreciate that they kept assuming this was written as a single piece of music, I do appreciate that they kept the integrity of that on the soundtrack and had it all as one piece of music. I really like this song because of the different movements within it. We get a lot of instrumental variety in here. The woodwinds at the beginning sound very, very Native American to me. You had an album of Native American woodwind music. Or Carlos Nakai. I have several of his albums. And I listened to that at some point. And, you know, this sounds very much like that. Instantly recognizable as Native American flute or woodwind music. Later on in the, in the song, we get fiddle, which I thought was so fun. Loved that. Again, feels very Western. And so I thought that was lovely. So yeah, I really enjoyed the song. And I don't mind that it doesn't appear as the whole track in the movie. Because sometimes you might just need a little, you know, minute and a half clip from this larger piece of music. And that's fine. But I do like that they kept it as one on the album if it was written that way and intended to be played that way. Well, that's what I was saying about I would be more accepting of this as a seven-minute song if I had a sequence in my head to reflect the movements between the Native American flute and the fiddle and the other elements that are in there. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a long song with movements that shift gears in a soundtrack, you would think it would go with something. That was why after I watched the movie, I was like, I can't find this seven-minute chunk. And so, boom, minus one, down to the bottom. I'm tough with my soundtracks. You are. As a soundtrack fan, I mean, I sat and took meticulous notes on where these things were in the movie because that was part of the discussion. You know, it's a soundtrack. Where was it in the movie? And the fact that I couldn't find it as a unit, well, on a soundtrack album, that's kind of a weird choice. If I only have the section with the flute with a specific sequence in the movie, I do two and a half minutes of that. And if I have a separate sequence with the fiddle over here with these guys, I put two and a half minutes of that. Yeah, that's true. I suppose it wouldn't be that hard to split this into three, two and a half minute chunks. And it would be an 18 track album or a 17 track album, but the length would be the same. It's still 50 minutes. Yeah. We've cut other things out. I wouldn't cut this out of my final product. Yeah. I would not cut this out, even though it's my least favorite, Hmm. but I would handle it differently. Interesting. Okay. 
I'm not producing this album, so don't get excited. <laughs> I no, I, I was not. <laughs> Believe you, you me. Excited. No. <laughs> you look like the zebra on the pineapple can. You gave, you were giving me that look right there. <laughs> now, one final left turn. We're going to move back to the vocal songs with Brian Adams. The sequencing on this is so bad. <laughs> so let's go with track 14, Nothing I've Ever Known. And by the way, nothing that's in the film. Nothing I have ever known has made me feel this way. Nothing I have ever seen has made me want to stay. doesn't appear anywhere in the movie or over the end credits this is just an extra song which i happen to like but this one gets cut from my edit it just because of that like why am i going to have a song that doesn't even appear over the end credits on a soundtrack album yeah i feel like this was another song that was written for a sequence and then when they put it in there it was like nah, i don't think that works for example i feel like the lyrics that i played way better express that change in his resolve on the train Nothing I've ever known has made me feel this way or made me want to stay following a star to lead to where you are. So maybe it was done for that. And maybe they yeah. felt that didn't work there. I don't know. But I don't dislike the song. I just feel like it's an odd choice to put on a... It, <laughs> this is the 14th song on the album. We definitely didn't need this one. Yeah. Nobody who saw the movie is familiar with this song. Right, right. There's no point. It's a song about... Like a lot of the other songs about searching for home, whether that's a place or whether that's a person is not clear when you listen to it outside the context of the movie. And then when you listen, having watched the movie, because again, it's not over top of any particular footage in the film. It could be both. Yeah. Right? It could be the herd. It could be the location. It's all the things we've been talking could about. It could be rain. It's everything that's in the film. Right. So it's a well done song. This is the one with the Latin guitar. And for that reason, it makes me think of another DreamWorks movie with a rock star composer. What? The Road to El Dorado with music by Elton John. <laughs> Will you be entering into the school of uh, speaking smartly about music or are you just referencing it? No, because... And here's the actual secret, <laughs> right? If I had my druthers, I would have chosen that soundtrack instead of Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. However, it doesn't exist. The soundtrack as heard on the movie, The Road to El Dorado, does not exist. What does exist is a soundtrack where Elton John restyles all the songs. And even the songs that are sung by the voice actors in the movie, he re-sings as Elton John. So it is not the actual 
soundtrack. It's not what you hear in the movie. And it's frankly less enjoyable. So I couldn't assign you the Road to El Dorado soundtrack. So no, I don't have an entry in the Abigail Hummel School speaking smartly about music because the comparison track doesn't exist. (laughs) All right. But I wish that the movie version of those songs existed in one place because that's another amazing, amazing soundtrack that I'm a huge fan of. So that takes us to the 15th and final track of the album. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) And you're going to recognize the title because it's I Will Always Return. For the second time. See, even you put your hands up by your heart. He's home. Well, that's my point. So this song, I played the end because I wanted you to get a sense of how this one ended to end the movie with a little bit of orchestral music. But it starts off very slow. It's a much more emotional song than the other version of this song. Yeah. That's why I like this better. This is my third favorite song on the album. Oh, wow. And it became my third in the context of the movie. I was struggling on a third one because I like a lot of them evenly. But then when I watched the movie, this song is almost perfectly overlaid over top of the footage of them. It's the two of them, Spirit and Rain, running back to the herd, meeting the herd, and finding that place in their home. So it's a very emotional track, particularly over top of the footage. It works emotionally from start to finish anyway, because it becomes a very big build up to that emotional finale and then it works even better over the footage so this is my third favorite for that reason and if i was putting a soundtrack together the single wouldn't have made it this would be on here in this slot near the end just where it belongs it's a good choice it's a great song i like the single version better as a song it sounds like it was written to be a a pop hit i love it this is obviously the orchestral version it's gorgeous and it works beautifully over the visuals and it's so emotional he's home he's finally where he spent the entire movie trying to be it's very satisfying but as a song I like the single version better. But did you have the same emotional response to the single version? I didn't. Probably not. So I'm reviewing a soundtrack, and this is a better soundtrack song. And for somebody who gravitates towards singles, you should give me extra credit (laughs) for picking this over the single. I know. I really should. (laughs) But you also love to rate, you know, we talk about rating against styles and beer, but you also, you whatever type of genre we're listening to, you get very into whether songs sound in their mold on the album, whether they sound completely different from anything else on the album. Like you sort of tend to listen to albums as a package, as we've discussed many times. And for that reason, that's my job. I feel you choose favorites and least favorites comparatively. 
within albums based on what the rest of the album sounds like. Does that make sense? Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that at all. So like if this weren't a soundtrack, maybe you would have liked the single version better, but you got really into the, this is a movie soundtrack. You know, it's a score. There's going to be visuals represented by these songs. And yeah, the single version doesn't sound like it could be played on top of visuals in the same way that this one does, just because it's not that type of music. But as a song, I like it better. I found this one way more emotional than this single. Well, that wraps up Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, both the movie and the soundtrack. All new to me, with the exception of the single, which I definitely heard on the radio. It's so funny. And I'm guessing I'm not going to play this album very much in the future. <laughs> oh no <laughs> there were some things on here i liked a lot probably make a running playlist but i don't know that i'm going to sit down and, and listen to an hour of spirit stallion of the simran from start to finish too but often. will you watch the movie again circumstantially okay if, all if right the, i'll take it i thought the movie was good i did am i going to sit around and watch an animated film more than once now with no kids in the house probably not well, next time we're on a road trip of the American Southwest, you can sit in the back seat with a movie screen and watch they don't it. Don't make and... those anymore. Nobody has a movie screen <laughs> in the vehicle anymore. Everybody brings their iPad and watches their own thing. Nobody's doing. All that. right, fine. You can watch it on your iPad. <laughs> there was a very specific moment in time. It really was. DVD players in the car. But honestly, it served us very well. I have no complaints about that DVD player in the car. I just remember you each had your own headphones and you had to be plugged in and then we could play music while you were doing that. That's why I didn't yep. see this movie. We were up there rocking <laughs> while you were watching Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron for the 85th time, which on the, on the trip across the country was in all the places represented in the movie, by the way. I know. That, well, that's why it was so magical. We we watched that a lot and we watched the Hotel Dorado a lot that trip too. I don't even remember how many DVDs we brought because those were the only two I remember watching on that trip. <laughs> over and over. But you guys just would perseverate on the same movie forever. Well, you know, I still do that. I will fixate on a piece of media like that still to this day. Well, this project makes me do it. I'm so glad to be moving on from spirit. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it in a bad way. It's wow, like, I'm so only... sorry to have to uh, force you to. <laughs> I meant it in the sense that two solid weeks of spirit, I'm ready to move on to the next thing, which. Well, I can't wait to hear what that is, but I think we have to rate our beer first. Yes, we do have to rate our beer first. And so we're rating the final green zebra. This is the mango green zebra. Now that it's warmed up, I think it's a little more tart than it was initially. I definitely get mango. It is sweet. And um, I'm stuck between a 375 and a 4. I'm going to go with a 4. The last sip convinced me. Go with a 4. Interestingly, this is my least favorite of the day. Really? Yeah. It's not tart enough for me. It's too sweet, I think. And maybe that is the order we drank it in. Because coming off that pineapple, that pineapple was really tart. I'm going to give this a 375. So here's my definitive ranking. Number one, peach. Number two, pineapple. Number three, watermelon. Number four, mango. I'm going to go peach, watermelon, mango, pineapple. Nice. So peach was both of our favorite. Yeah, that was a really surprisingly good beer. Very good. But overall, surprisingly good. All of these were delicious. Again, I rated all of them a 375, except for the peach, which I gave a 4-0. 
well above my standard for I would drink it again. Really, the fresh fruit component of this is the surprising piece, I think. Yeah, because we've had a lot of beers where it definitely tastes like an artificial flavor, especially with some of these subtler flavors like watermelon. But these were all very fresh, very natural tasting, and I really enjoyed that. Kudos to the green zebra. All right, so it's my turn to give you an album. Yes. So you already know where we're going because we recently appeared on Beer in Front with Dave's Alatoris, and then this happened. What I was looking for, though, Dave, what's more important to me is, uh, we, I was thinking, well, we need to do a crossover episode, so how can I get Dave involved in the Pops on Hops world? And so I would like to throw it out there to you that if you had an album, I'll let you skip ahead of the line is what I'm saying. Oh. The virtual jukebox, I get to... Every once in a while, we do a thing where we kind of phone a friend. So I've done it with my wife and Abigail's done it with our with her brother, my our son. And um, so I am going to uh, turn over one of my episodes to you if you'd like to do that. And if that were the case, what album do you think you'd suggest? Hmm. Well, you said you had cards one through nine. I wish there was a deck that had cards one through 11. Because uh -oh. I would pick one of my favorite bands of all time, the Smithereens, and their classic album, Eleven. And so, yes, in our first version of a pod swap, we will be having our buddy Dave Zalatoris from Beer in Front join us. He's taking my slot and offered up Smithereens Eleven. And so that's my next choice indirectly through Dave. So we'll get to spend some time with Dave. I was so delighted that you had heard of this album before Dave suggested it because I have not heard of this album. So it really, really delighted me that you already knew it and the stars aligned that Dave was able to choose that for slash on behalf of you. So very excited to talk about it. Very excited to talk to Dave again. He's a ton of fun and I can't wait to see what beer he's going to send us to. Well, we know it's going to be great stuff from Chicago. So that's next time. In the meantime, if you need more Pops on Hops content, you can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod, or you can email us at popsonhopspod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. Or you can visit our super cool website, popsonhopspod.com. That's where we keep bonus photos, videos, and other materials related to each of our bi-weekly episodes. That is also where you can submit to our virtual jukebox for a chance for your favorite album and even your voice to appear on the pod. And on behalf of Hops and Pops, we'll see you next time. I hear the ghosts call my name, the hops that bring me home again, the stripes of the zebra, the tart of the fruit. Oh, to beer, I will always return. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> <laughs> I got to dive deep into Sarah McLaughlin's background. I'm not sure I know that. Is she American? I don't know. Literally, the only thing I know about Sarah McLaughlin is those uh, ASPCA commercials. <laughs> In the yeah. arms of the angels, fly <laughs> uh, away. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Maybe that's why you have a distasteful interpretation of the song. Honestly, it could be because those commercials are just really depressing. And I don't think they should be allowed on television. Wow, that's a hot take. 